Thank you, Lord, so much for your word and the richness and the depth of it. Magnificence, God, of what you do. And the Lord, the glory you reveal of yourself in it. Recognize, Lord, we don't want to make an idol of your word. We want to use it, Lord, the way you intend to see you in it and to understand you better in your love for us. And God, the privilege tonight of being able to enjoy you in the way, Lord, that you show in your glorious might our lives laid bare before you for the changing, for the transformation, for that which you intend. God, please tonight do that. Have your way, we pray. Pour forth your Holy Spirit in a way, Lord, our eyes are open and our ears are open. But Lord, we recognize that means that we have to have hearts that are willing to engage the information So we don't just oversee, but we look. And we don't just overhear, but we listen. So do that today, I pray. And speak uniquely and beautifully into each of us, please, but also corporately to us as a family. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege of this time. Bless every moment I pray in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, of course, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. First Samuel, now, of course, we're roughly on the far side of 1000 B.C., between 1000 and 1100 B.C. We are in the time of Judges. We are finishing. We end the book of Judges, and we end the time of Judges with the book of First Samuel. Uh, in between, of course, is that beautiful love story we know as the book of Ruth. But what we have, of course, is in God starts the book of Samuel, First Samuel, with a really, really desperate situation. And it's important to recognize God started this whole thing with the clincher, with that clincher scene where he shows us a couple in crisis. I mean, it's a weird thing. Of course, it's kind of a love triangle in the sense that the husband has two wives. Uh, that's never anything God condones. Understand God says things honestly. He He, he, he doesn't pull punches, and just because God says it doesn't mean he condones it. And clearly, every time he shows you a guy married to more than one girl, he shows you trouble. Here, though, there is a woman who is favored, and this girl that is favored, her name is Grace, Hannah, she is in a position where, of course, she's barren. And to make things even worse, in her culture, of course, that is about as great of a disgrace as a girl could be. You assume that's God punishing you. You assume that that's God in essence, harvesting some sin that you've plowed into your life. Well, <clears throat> with all of that, she um, seems to be a gal who is, is as well obsessed with it. But please understand, she goes, uh, she has a husband whose name means my God's the king, which is interesting because he tells us the way that we start this, the scene opens for Samuel 1 by telling us that it was the time of Judges. It was a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So here it is. There's no king, but we are introduced to a guy whose name is my God is the king. I mean, I I don't think God did that by accident. And the point of it is, is that he really wants to make clear who should be the king in this situation. And that's why everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. If we don't submit to the Lord and to his ways, what we'll find, of course, is we'll make up our own sense of right. That's where we're at. So the girl goes as this man, my God, the king, my God is king, goes yearly to worship. He is, uh, it's important to recognize, an Ephraimite. And as he goes to worship, it isn't like he's got some priestly duty. He does it because he wants to worship. I mean, three times a year you're supposed to go. For we don't know what feast it is. We do know this. He does go to, to worship. And as he goes to worship, uh, his wives, his wives both seem to come and one seems to torture the other. Uh, but the, <clears throat> see, we get a little bit more information because the husband, in favoring this gal, Hannah, uh, he gives her a greater sacrifice. And, and with that, of course, the other just makes her life miserable. So Hannah then runs into the tabernacle, if you will, uh, into the tabernacle uh, proper and, or into the courtyard, and she just starts to weep. And she's crying out. She's crying out. And she's going, God, please... If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life here. But I understand her mouth is moving. Her mouth is moving, but no words are coming out. She's too drunk with grief, if you will. And this priest, Eli, Eli, looks and sees us, and he assumes she's drunk. It'll give you, of course, that background into why, as we see his own household here in chapter 2. 
And he calls her out on it. How long will you be drunk, woman? And this poor girl, just to add to all of her grief, now has the clergy on her back misreading her situation. And she says, I'm not, I'm not drunk, as you suppose. I'm just really beat up with grief. And, and with that, now the, the priest is a little nervous. And he goes, all right, well, may the Lord grant you that. If that's really the reason you've come here with this kind of heart in it. And, and, and I wonder if there's anything in my life that I would grieve that much over in my walk with God. Is there anything that would get me to this kind of grief that wasn't like losing a daughter or losing my wife? I mean, things that I know would be unbearable without him. But he's supposed to be the most important thing in my life. <clears throat> and Tay would, you, Tay, would you just go close that door, please? Thank you. Uh, he's supposed to be the most important thing in my life, and I, but if I were to lose my relationship with him, would it be that I'd just be afraid to go to hell, or would it be that my relationship with him would be so suffering? Would that make the difference? Because really, that's what's going on here. And she's, she's just grieving, but I, I want to be, be in that situation where, where my heart would break that much. If I knew that my lifestyle was really severing me from an intimate relationship like I should have with God. So the child is born. God grants her that wish. And, and, and in that, she gives the child over and then prays this beautiful prayer we looked at last week that was basically the first, uh, first 10 verses, 11 is our segue verse, the first 10 verses of chapter 12, um, chapter 2, I'm sorry. And, and I, what I think it's fascinating. It's like imagine a prayer so beautiful that God would choose to record it for us to see and hear forever. How many, how many prayers? If I could pick of all the prayers I've ever prayed to God, and God would lay them all on the table, would there be any that I would think would be good enough for revision? Now, I'm not talking about eloquence or execution. I'm talking about genuinity, transparency, really heartfelt. Her prayer is more than just, oh, God, thanks for finally giving me a kid. Her theme is God the Great Reverser. See, Hannah was the underdog. She was the low end of the totem pole. She was the despised. She was the bottom end. And the reason she was the bottom end was because of her situation, her status. But she was loved. She was loved. And Hannah starts to realize, wow, God, with you, I don't need anything but you, and you can flip everything completely around. You can take the underdog and overcome the bully incumbent. And her whole prayer reflects that. Her heart, her horn, her mouth. And it's interesting, she says, you know, look, my mouth is enlarged. It's the same mouth that Ellie had accused her of because he saw it moving. She says, no, my mouth is enlarged not to, to, to go, ha, to my enemy, but rather to praise you, God, for what you've done. Because you're so the only God and nothing's like you. And she compares the mighty, the full, the fertile, all of those that have the edge. Man, they found themselves at the bottom. And the weak, strengthened, the hungry, full, the barren now, blessed, like one who had many children. And I love the fact that what she shows in all of that is, listen, because God can kill and make alive, bring down to the grave and raise up, because he can make poor and make rich, bring low and lift up, because he can raise the poor from the dust and the beggars from the dunghill to set among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory, because God can do all of that. He can take the weakest, the most unlikely, and make them the greatest. Because God does not need heroes to recruit. God is looking for servants to operate through. So there's nothing you can bring to God. Nothing that we can bring to God that makes us the edge other than our obedience. He does the rest. I have no idea whether 
she knows that this is going to be, in essence, anthemic for the entire book. It is, in essence, the very anthem. And what we'll see, of course, is there's always this incumbent that seems to have the advantage. And then there's this underdog introduced, and you see God lift up the underdog and take him over the strong. Obviously, that's the case with her and Penina, the other wife. Then we're going to see it in regards to the priests with this Eli and his sons versus this little boy that had been born from Hannah. His name is Shmulech, or Samuel. Then we'll see it with Saul and David. And in every case, there is one that is weak, that is despised, that is base. And this is exactly what God tells us in the New Testament as well. See, God sets things into motion. There's nothing new in the New Testament. It's just the, the fulfillment of the promises God gives us in the Old. That's what makes the Bible different from all the other books, is it lays out, if you will, all of these promises and then sees them fulfilled. It isn't like God's playing roulette or he's playing the horoscope. This is God being genuine and saying, look, at this is how you'll know I'm he. I'll say things and make them come to pass. Bring your case forward and show me how that works with you. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's not the mighty and the rich and the, and the, and the, the brilliant that God seems to be using. He says he uses the weak to shame the strong and the foolish to shame the wise and the base. Do you know what a base is? I mean, I'm not talking about something really big that you try to play. It's about the size of Hugo, but he plays it anyways. It's talking about the thing at the bottom. That's where a base is. It's at the bottom. And the despised. And that which is not. That's what God uses. Then maybe you don't feel like you're actually, I mean, the, the dangerous thing is when we think we're at the top of the totem pole and God would be doing himself a favor to use us. We know we're in trouble when that happens because we become less usable. That's where we're honest with ourselves to say that without you, I'm nothing. I have nothing. I am nothing. I do nothing if it not be laid in your hands. It's you, God, that are the artist. I'm just a broken brush. I'm just a thing, but you're such a great artist. You don't need a perfect paintbrush to paint a masterpiece. You don't need a perfect tool to build your kingdom. You need one that is willing to submit to your hand. Isn't that relieving? Are we trying to make ourselves more recruitable? Versus more usable. In this chapter now, the rest of it, what God shows us is if we see God the reverser. God the one who lifts up the lowly and takes down the strong. That's what we're going to see in the chapter. And we're going to see this is why this needs to happen in the play area of the priesthood. Now let me see how that plays out. Fast forward a thousand years, a little more than a thousand, and what you find is the same situation with Jesus. There is an incumbent, strong, well-funded, very powerful, very influential group of people that are religious leaders who have their own armed guards. And then you have this, I mean, God choosing Jesus to be born as a lowly carpenter from a nowhere place from a family of questionable repute because a girl got pregnant without a guy, you know, at least that's what she's saying, which one of us is going to buy that? Except that Isaiah prophesied it, well, I don't know, 700 plus years before that. And to be honest, it was even prophesied in Genesis 3, 3,000 years before. And yet in all of that, every possible disadvantage Jesus had, except the most important. He had no stately form or majesty. He wasn't good looking. He wasn't super buff or anything like that. No matter how we paint him as the beautiful bodybuilder surfer Jesus that everyone seems to like to hang in their windows. He wasn't super popular initially. He was despised by the strong and mighty. But he was a friend of sinners. And the reason I say that is God doesn't need an army or a brilliant man or an influential person in and of himself or a charismatic person to change the world because God's the world changer. What he wants is a teachable person, a flexible person, an available person, a surrendered person. So why not you? Why not you to change the world? Are we too inflexible? Are we too unavailable? 
Are we, do we put ourselves in a place where we're too entitled? We'll take a look at the situation now as God takes this beautiful anthem of the first ten verses and applies it now to the world around us. And just the same way that it happened in Jesus' day, what if God wanted to start that revolution in here? We're not gigantic. You wouldn't look and go, now there's the group I would pick to change the world. Sounds like we, have, sounds like we qualify. Look who Jesus chose his disciples. You wouldn't have picked those guys to change the world. But time got split in half because of it. Can you imagine? So why not you? Verse 12. Verse 11 says, Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. That's where they live, roughly 15 miles to 20 miles away from the Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. But the child, and the child, by the way, that is Samuel, that is the son of Hannah, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. The word know, there's the word yada. It means to know by experience. We would say gnosko if it were in the Greek. And it is translated so as it is translated into the Greek. Understand, this doesn't mean that they were, these poor guys just didn't know. They were ignorant. They were willingly ignorant. And there is a difference. It is the person, you know, it's when someone calls you when you see caller ID and you see that it's someone you don't want to answer and you don't answer the phone. It's the mail that you get and you just kind of know. It's the person that's out there canvassing and you see them and they've got their clipboard and they've got their lanyard and the whole bit and you kind of purposely pretend like you don't speak English or you waver off. I I don't do those things. I just know other people. You know, but it's like, you know, those kind of things where all of a sudden you're on the phone talking to no one. But, you know, those kind of things. You start a conversation with a stranger, you get it. And the idea of it is, it's there for your taking, you're just not taking it. And that's where these guys were to understand, these are priest kids, these are PKs. And these are guys that are raised in the household that God had ordained to bury, to listen. What a priest was to do was to carry the love of God to people and the sins of man to God. Not in some box for you just to tell it to someone. Because how do you exert and display the love of God to someone like that? But to be honest, different than that. And that was why, for the high priest, that was the black stones upon his shoulder. Because from God's perspective, that would be the sin upon the shoulders that will ultimately be our high priest, Jesus, says Hebrews 4. And then, but also this beautiful, precious stones, 12, so that the, the, from our perspective as humankind, from that, if you will, horizontal, we see those precious stones because God wants you to know that's what you are to me. And, and, and understand, that's where they were supposed to be. But these guys had no interest in anything they had to do with God. But they were really, listen, they were keen to cash in on the Benny package of being a priest. And there's the scary part. No, they wanted God's blessings. They wanted God's provision and his protection. Oh, they certainly wanted that. What they just didn't want was God. They didn't want to know him. If they could get all of the stuff God gave and God had nothing to do with it, they would gladly take it. What about me? What about you? If heaven was no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no goodbyes to anyone you loved, you were perpetually young, and everything went your way. Every time you dropped back behind the three, it went without touching the rim. I mean, whatever it was. Every time you kicked, man, the goalie missed it, which means there must not be heaven for the goalie. But you know, you get that. But Wherever that happened. But if all of that stuff could be there, and it was wherever your perfect place is, whether that's Tahiti, it's a magical place, or whether it's, you know, this, you know, whether it's the sun or the mountains or the surf or the sea or the city or whatever it is, you know, there's no traffic, there's no anything, and everything was just perfect. Your food was cooked perfectly. It was always good. All of that stuff. And if all of that were there, but God wasn't there, would it be heaven? Here, I know you have to answer the way that you're supposed to. But what if we were honest with ourselves? Would we find that? Because what if God gave us all of that stuff now? Would we still want, would that satisfy me? Versus God stripping all of that away but just making it Him. Because if I can't be satisfied just in Jesus, how in the world is all this stuff going to do it? These guys were corrupt. 
literally sons of worthlessness, sons of Belial. And they did not know the Lord. The priest's custom was, and now we start to see what that looks like. What you see when you see what a couple guys attached to worthlessness look like. Vanity. Senseless nonsense. And here's the first thing we see in verse 13. The priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, whatever they were cooking, boiling in it. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did at Shiloh, that's where the tabernacle is, to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first. Then you may take as much as your heart desires. Well, they would say to him, No, but you must give it to me. Now give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Now, Let's just assume that God would assume you're going to read the Bible straight through. That would mean you have read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then got yourself to here. The reason I would say that is then you would have read through Deuteronomy 18 or Leviticus 7. In Leviticus 7, it tells us, by the way, that God's provision for the priest was part of the sacrifice, but it was an ordained part. It was not potluck. And literally, as we see it here, it wasn't like you stuck your trident in and whatever you pulled out, that was the meat for eating. It tells us in Leviticus 7, for what it's worth, verse 30, that the fat and the breast shall they, they will bring and the breast would be waved. And this is of their of their offering will be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall, in verse 31, burn the fat on the altar, but the breast will be Aaron and his sons. That's the priests in the Levitical order. Also the right thigh. Give it to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. Now don't miss that. A peace offering. There were five basic sacrifices that people gave. Burnt was, was fundamental. There was that of sin and trespass offering. But one of those offerings was the offering of the peace offering. And the peace offering was an offering that if two people had been in some way in some disagreement... They had had a rough go at something, and they had been reconciled. They were to celebrate it by going to the Lord and show that God was the one who brings unity. They would bring an animal, they would slay it, and then they'd have a barbecue. And they would offer it so that the two people that were once actually against each other now being in union. You know, it's like Daniel is speaking with Bruno when they're in a disagreement, and they want to kill each other. But then Bruno turns to Daniel and he says, by the way, my mother's name is Martha. And all of a sudden, Daniel says, oh, my goodness. Well, I know what you're saying. Mine, too. Let's be friends. And what would happen is, okay, well, then who's you? Well, then they would go and kill an animal. They would slaughter it. And then they would eat together because there's something about eating together that says we're both partaking of the same thing. That's important to us. There's a union there. Physically, we are eating of the same animal, and that same animal says we have something in common, but we offered it to God because God was the thing we had in common that brought us together in the first place. But you also then took part of that animal, as we see here, the right thigh and the breast, and you offered it then to the priest for him to eat. That was it. That was his part. Well, what if he wanted the hoof? What if he wanted to eat the horn? What if he wanted to eat the kidneys? God's like, that's not your part. Understand, God gave every human being a physical appetite so that you don't die. That's good. But with every specific appetite, God has a specific menu. And that specific menu is ordained so that you would actually take what God offers. Anything you order off of that menu is lust. Lust isn't just wanting to have sex with somebody you're not married to. Lust, in the simplest sense, is taking an appetite God gave you and not ordering from his menu. Because every appetite you, get, you have, God gave you. Now, where you want to do with it, that's, that is where you decide whether it's going to be under God's surveillance or under God's provision or not. There are people who have certain kinds of uh, syndromes 
that are clearly where they desire, for instance, to eat rocks and gravel and broken glass. Now, Pico syndrome. And by the way, we recognize that's not healthy. They literally have an appetite to eat broken glass or gravel. I, had a, I knew somebody that had Pico syndrome. Their desire was to eat light bulbs. Well, that's a wild one. Now, clearly, in a case like that, their appetite wasn't the problem. It was where their appetite was driven towards that was going to kill them. And it will with you, too. It tells us, by the way, in Philippians 3 about false teachers, whose end, by the way, in verse 19 we read, is destruction. It tells us whose God is their belly. Their appetites drive them. Not their appetites for God. They're raw. Don't put any boundaries on my appetite. How dare you tell me what I should do with this appetite? Well, that sounds like no king in your life except you in your mind. And you do what's right in your own mind, not what God says. They've gotten to the point, of course, at this point, where what you find is these religious kids, we were selfish bullies. That's really what we have here. Selfish bullies. They were, though, the strong. If you think about it, they were the ones that were the the powerful. They were the ones who had the funding. All of the things, by the way, that people want, they had except the thing we need, which is God, which actually would be the thing that satisfies us. Now, this is really, really important here. Because as we dive into this for a second, I want you to recognize that it tells us in verse 17 the result of what happens when those that represent him are driven by those appetites. Therefore, the sin of the young men. This is fundamental, by the way, because the term for young men here speaks about a child to an adolescent. This was not a 25-year-old kid. 20, well, be careful. 25-year-old guy, adult. This was a kid. This was someone who hasn't even hit puberty. At puberty, the, the word changes, by the way. And the reason I say that is, these two kids, I remind you, their names are Puncher and Serpent Mouth, Finesse and, and, and what we see here. These two guys, at this point, were just kids. And it, that tells me, by the way, that they're roughly Samuel's age. And these kids, maybe eight, maybe ten, maybe twelve, were the ones sending servants to stick these hooks or these, these tridents, if you will, into the pots and pull it out and then just say, give us raw meat because we just want to barbecue it. No, I, ain't, I prefer raw, I prefer barbecued meat over boiled meat any day. But that's not the point. That was not what God said. He said, you need to burn the fat. That's the point. God had already made that clear in Leviticus 7 and they knew that. That was their handbook. And they're like, I don't care what rules God makes. That's not good enough for me. My appetite is larger. Here's the problem. Everything off of God's menu, please hear this. Everything off of God's menu is like drinking salt water. It seems to meet the need, but it makes the appetite larger. It doesn't satisfy. It's that stereotypical eating Asian food where you know you're going to be hungry again in a half hour versus eating a good Italian meal where you're like full for like, you know, you'll be like hungry again in like two or three years, you know. And it's like you're sweating pasta out of your head, you know. And it's like, and the only reason I say that is it's like there's a difference between you're like, oh, there's no way I can. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm not going to be able to eat it maybe for an, until I, my next birthday. You know, there's a difference between that and wow, that was really good. What's next? And unfortunately, when it's off of God's menu, what happens is you keep getting hungry, so you keep getting more of it, and it gets you tangled up, and then you get addicted. And Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to it. You get addicted to it, because what happens is you can't go to the one place where it can be met. So what happens when that's all the things that God can give, but now pretended by its masquerades, by its counterfeits, to be money, fame, marriage, Power. All those things that the world sells you are supposed to satisfy. And you find that the people who get it are the most miserable because they should be satisfied and they're not. Because the appetite is worse. Because the only place it can be met is in Him, in Christ. As a result of that, 
people hated, abhorred. Look at verse 17. They abhorred. And the word there speaks about them mocking. It's like going to church is a joke. You know why it's a joke? Because I can blame it on people who call themselves Christians or guys that call themselves priests or clergy or whatever. And what I saw was people that just were as lost and driven by their own lust as anyone else. Well, you can imagine how God takes that. But, and remember how Hannah's prayer was, God takes that which is strong and and lofty and brings it down. And God raises that which is lowly. Well, God showed us the big, and now he shows us the underdog. But Samuel, verse 18, and I love the word but there in these circumstances. Jesus taught us, by the way, in Matthew twenty three eleven that the greatest has to be servant, not lording over. He spoke in twenty three fourteen about the scribes and the Pharisees, that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Jesus says, you know, as a result of that, you'll receive a greater condemnation. I don't know what that means. You'd think condemnation would be bad. Greater condemnation? That's like... Worse hell? There's a worse hell than there's like hell and then there's really bad hell? I don't want any of it. That's like, would you like a punch in the face or a really bad punch in the face? I go none. Is there a none option? But Samuel, there's a greater resurrection too. I don't don't know if I can explain that. That's what it says in Hebrews 11. Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child. Even as a child. Even as that same thing, those other kids driven as children now, Samuel here as, as, that, as a toddler working his way from somewhere between toddler to adolescent. You, and by the way, do you realize what this says is, is you could actually change the world and you don't have to be old to do it. Why? I mean, if you want to do an underdog, why not pick a 10-year-old? That would be a good underdog. If you've got a guy that's strong and mighty, why not pick a teenager to overcome. That's the story of Saul and David. But let me tell you one of the things that happens that predisposes you to be such a world changer. Samuel, by the way, even as a child, wore a linen ephod. By the way, that is classic, if you will. That's the fare for a priest. Leviticus 8 makes that clear. I do find it interesting that David, what we're going to see by 2 Samuel, chapter 6, It seems to me that David never really wanted to be king. If he could be anything, he'd be a priest. It tells us when David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Now, have you ever danced danced with all of your might before? I've never danced with all of my might. I don't even know what that would look like. I think it would be fun to try, but at my age at this point, I think it could be pretty lethal, probably for myself and anyone near me. But it tells us that he danced with all... And this is God recording it. Hey, imagine God's going, hey, you guys, imagine God gathering all of the angels and going, check that out. That's all of his might. He's not, that's not half-hearted. That's him really going for it. Look at that. That guy's spending it all on the field right there. You guys, check this out. Look at this. Look at this. It says, wearing a linen ephod. That's not just going, well, that's David dancing in his underwear. A linen ephod? And David's like, can I be a priest, please? And God's like, well, you know, I have a feeling this text tells me why he might have wanted it all the more. But listen, his mother, the one who had kept him till he was weaned. Verse 19, moreover, his mother used to take, make him a little robe. Well, that tells you, I mean, you don't get the idea here of a big, you know, boxy teen. Make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. I would imagine every year it has to be a little bigger. When she came up with her husband, in other words, what this means is even though God fulfilled, hear me, even though God fulfilled this promise and this cry of Hannah's heart, that didn't stop her from worshiping, which tells me that though God granted her request, it wasn't a means to an end. God was the end. It wasn't like, God, I really need this in my life. And if the most important thing isn't God, but this idol you've made of this thing God has to give you, then what happens is if God gave it to you, you'd bail on him. Why would God give it to you then? God, you know I would serve you greatly if I won the lottery. God knows better. And why would God ever want to give you anything that would bring you away from him? I didn't have children to make them strangers. Children because I want to be with them. 
I didn't get married because what I wanted was a roommate. I got married because I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And the reason I say that is, is that what I see with Hannah and Elkanah is that when God gave them their heart's desire, it didn't stop them from worshiping him. It only made them worship him more. And they kept coming. They kept coming because God was not a means to an end. He was the end. Well, so she would come and every year, imagine it's like, hi, it's mom. Here's your new robe. You know, there's kind of the idea. But the thing cool about it is that mom was making something and what mom recognized is, boy, you're a priest. She could have made him some nice trousers. She could have given him a nice blazer or a waistcoat. She gave him a robe for a reason. And it wasn't like, you know, as you get bigger, you're going to need something when you step out of the shower on those cool Judean nights or whatever. You know, the whole point of it here is, listen, we as a family just want you to know we're, whole, we're totally behind your priesthood, even though you're not a Levite. And Eli would bless Elkanah. Remember, that's the priest, Eli. He would bless the man and his wife, Elkanah and his wife, and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given from, to the Lord. Then they would go back to their home. So I don't know how many times this would happen where he's like, hey, the Lord bless you. May he bless you with more kids now that you've given this one over to the Lord. And what would it be like to be a parent and hand over your toddler to a guy that you already know has produced Puncher and serpent mouth, Hophni and Phineas, that has now had these guys that work in your life to throw in tridents and get the meat they want and say, if you don't want, I'm going to punch you in the face if you don't get it. I mean, these were the guys that were serving these two punk kids, and you're going to hand your kid over to this guy? How crazy is that? priest says, you know what? You've done this in faith. You've fulfilled your vow on this. May the Lord bless you for it. And it says they would keep coming back and he would keep saying this. And why is that important? Because notice verse 21. It says, and the Lord visited Hannah and so she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. That's five more kids. So imagine it's like, hey, the Lord may give you more. And then all of a sudden Deborah gets pregnant and there's a baby. And then you come back and it's like, the Lord bless you some more for that loan. And then she gets pregnant and it's another baby. And after a while you start going, man, I don't know if we need any more kids. We should stop going to church. You know, I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. And the Lord continues to bless them in this. And this was a girl who had no children, I remind you. It was like she was a disgrace in her society. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that was the culture. And in that now, God's like, all of a sudden, she's there with this brood of kids. She has to now get one of those big seven seaters. I mean, before this point, it wouldn't have mattered. She could have gotten a sports car because it was just her and her husband. But now she has to get a minivan. To pile in all the kids. But let's take a look at the other side. Meanwhile, back at the camp in Ellie's household. Ellie was very old. Verse 22. And he heard everything that his sons did. Oh, we should go. Verse 21. It says, she conceived, she bore this. And says, meanwhile, the child, there again, that sort of toddler, pre-adolescent, the tween, grew before the Lord. And the word grow is the key here. Because Ellie was very old and he heard the things that his son did to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. No, please hear me in this. Somewhere now, what we have are three different children. We have at least two boys, Puncher and Serpent Mouth. And we have God has heard. Shmulek, Shema El. And, and listen, please, they both grew. Like it or not, you are going to grow. Now, some of us, we've reached the age where now any physical growth that happens probably will not be flattering. Gravity will win more. It'll pull all the hair out of our head and drop it down into our nose and ears. If we do it right, we can make it look like a mustache. Our pecs now have become, and the six-pack have now become the kegger that we carry around just above our belt. But we will continue to grow. If not that way, life puts us on a trajectory. Now, as a man, 
God's intention for us, as Titus 2 makes clear, is to make us stable. Men who are sound in doctrine and in faith, love. A pattern of good works. Sober-minded, temperate, stable guys. Stable in Christ. And every day, as we walk with Christ, we should become more like that. More committed. In the book of 1 John, please hear my heart on this. John says, I write to you children. And he's speaking of spiritual, young in Christ. I write to you children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I've written to you children because you've known the Father. And when you start, that's all you know, really. He's, hey, <clears throat> my sins are forgiven, and, and I know God. And he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. You've overcome the wicked one, and the word of God lives in you. Now, I mean, this is a lot more elaborate in Shakespeare, as he writes, you know, of the stages of man. God writes it as three here. It's children and then young men. The thing I find interesting is he doesn't say, then I write to you old men. He says, I write to you children, I write to you young men, and then I write to you fathers. See, what God intended was for us not to grow old, but for us to grow fruitful. Not for us to become decrepit, and I mean that in no mean way, but rather for us to become mature. But unfortunately, we live in a culture, let's face it, where the older we get, the less usable, the more expendable, the more obsolete we appear. We do not live in a culture that honors age. Now, there are in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, some cultures still where an older person is actually honored for that age. You assume he has something to offer, she has something to offer for it. As a matter of fact, but every one of those cultures you find that in, will be a culture that focuses on the community, not on the individual. There's the difference. We're the Western culture. We all focus on the individual. On the Western culture, where everything focuses on the individual, you're driven by well, guilt, to be honest. On the Eastern cultures, often when you're looking at a community, you're not driven by guilt, but you'd be more concerned about shame because the concern is how you fit into the community. I love it in the book of Hebrews. It tells us that Jesus took both our guilt and shame. Upon himself. And I love that because no matter what culture you come from, Jesus is your answer. And, and the only reason I kind of say that is, is we kind of look at this. What you saw is Samuel's going to grow, but the boys do too. When Samuel grew, what happened is he grew more in love with God, more in favor with man, and to be honest, more with God's favor too. And the man is going to become, what we're going to see next week, is when God, what happens when he starts restoring his word. But unfortunately, that's not the only thing that grows. Because when those kids of Ellie were young, they were driven by their appetites. And they didn't care about God. They weren't interested in knowing God, and therefore they wouldn't submit to his standards. So they let their appetites be much more expansive. And as a result of that, this is what you grow into. It went from them saying, look, it, I'll take the meat the way I want my meat, you can't tell me how, how I'm going to eat. Interesting. Because we know what went from there? To them having sex at the door of the church. That's what it would be if we compared it. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being Hannah and Elkanah as they come to go visit their kid and his stepbrothers or half-brothers or however you want to play that out are doing this at the door and you have to step around this to go and give your kid the robe? Could you imagine that? Which one of us wouldn't go, hey, I'm taking my kid back. Man, we're so done with this. But she's keeping her word. And here's the interesting part about it, is that God says the boy grew, and this is how these guys grow. Now listen, this is the way God says it in the New Testament. He tells us, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. You want to plant corruption, you'll reap death. That's all there is to it. And what we've learned about planting, there's, there's what God makes clear, 
Hosea tells us, and we start looking at this, is first of all, all the way back in Genesis, you're only going to get what you plan. You know, if we really read the Bible for what it's worth, we couldn't believe in, in macro, huge evolution. And the reason is, what God makes clear, and it's, I don't know how God could have added it in any more ways. I'm not just talking about the day and the night thing, though that's pretty simple to me, too. But also it says that everything produced of its own kind. God says, the way I set it in motion is, this became the same thing when it gave birth. The seed produced the same thing when it germinated. And never, you know, and the reason I said, that doesn't mean things, I mean, we obviously, as people, we change, we adapt. But there's a big difference between that and actually thinking that someday a fish just got up and started walking on land, grew hair, became an ape, and then the next thing you know, it beat a Tyrannosaurus Rex and it's now sitting in the, one of the pews right now. The reason I say that is what God puts in motion is what you sow, you're going to reap. You can't plant apple seeds and expect a peach tree unless there's something wrong with you. But it isn't just that you get what you, you reap, what you sow, but also you're going to get more. As I said, that if you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. We're always going to get more. I mean, you look at a seed, if it's an apple tree, I mean, we actually had one. Apparently it was so old, it was too old. It produced fruit, but it was really nasty fruit. But then ultimately it just fell over. It was over a story and a half tall, and it just fell over in our backyard. But it's like you took a seed and you plant it. You don't get another apple seed. What you get is an apple tree that produces more apples. There's the exciting thing. You're going to get more than you plant if you sell it right. And there's the danger. That's good news or bad news. It all depends on what you're planting. So you want to plant corruption in your life? Well, expect to reap death. In other words, you know, I look at I look at an acorn and I realize, you know what that is? That's a forest starter kit is what it is. Because when you plant that thing, it grows a tree that produces a whole bunch more of those. When other of those are planted, a whole lot more trees grow. And when a whole lot more trees grow, then the next thing you know, you have an orchard and you started it with a little nut. And you, feel part of me for saying, you're a little nut. You're an orchard in the making. All you need to do is be planted in the proper place. Isn't that what it says in Psalm 92? He was planted in the house of the Lord, will flourish in the courts of our God. There's the point of it. It's what God really wants to do is plant you so that you could bear fruit. And imagine what would happen. That's that 30, 60, 100 fold God started to speak about when we look at Matthew 13. If you want to sow poor things, you're going to reap an orchard of hurt. But if you want to plant that which is of the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. And all of a sudden, you, uniquely you, remember that underdog that, that God's been pointing out in the whole point of this? You, you're too old, you're too young, you're too uninfluential, you're too, too socially whatever, you're too broken. Well, you don't understand the weaknesses I have, and you don't understand, yeah, you know what, I don't have to understand that because I need a better inventory of God's greatness than I do of your weakness. And that's not because I don't care about you, but that's because I don't want to limit God because he's unlimitable. Unfortunately, these guys are reaping. And they're, they started with, oh, give me whatever meat I want. And now they've turned the tabernacle into a meat market. And here's dad's response. And it gives us a little hint of why this grew it the way it did. He said to them, this is dad speaking to puncher and serpent mill. Why do you do such things? I hear these evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If a man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, well, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they didn't hear the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Boy, doesn't that just bring you a warm fuzzy reading that? Could you imagine God saying, the only way this is going to be beneficial now is for me to take him out? But you need to know something. Proverbs 15.10, on one side of it, we're getting balance here, tells us harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Please hear me. God never uses excessive force. If God could steer you with a feather, he will not use a sledgehammer. I'm very thankful for that. And if, he, if you will move by his whisper, he'll never have to shout. But what I've learned is when God shouts, it's never pretty. Have you learned that yet? But what happens if you're at the point now where you're completely immovable? You are so part of the par for course. Well, you need to know this as well. Ezekiel 33:11 tells us, and this is God speaking. Say to them, God's telling Ezekiel, 
As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, God sang, O house of Israel? God doesn't get his jollies from taking out bad people. He goes, God says, if I could have my way, they'd repent. He tells us it's not God's desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. We read that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But he is not going to get what he wants. The question is, is he, getting, is he going to get what he wants from me? How immovable am I? Because I'm so convinced somehow that God couldn't use me because I'm limiting God. Because God made a poor choice by choosing me. Where they're going to grow to is death. Hophni and Phinehas, Ellie's sons, they're going to die. And they're going to die by their own appetite. But, or in this case, and, verse 26, because the whole point is they're growing, the child Samuel grew as well. But he didn't grow in death. He grew in stature. It means he became bigger. And he grew in favor with both the Lord and men. I love it didn't just say he grew with favor with God. Why the Lord? Because when God brings up that term, what he's telling us is that he should be the king. He should be the boss. He grew in favor because he grew more obedient. Let me ask you. Look back a month ago, two months ago, six months ago. I am more alive in Christ today than you were then. Men, are we growing more stable? Gals, are you growing more content? Is that quiet spirit, that gentle spirit, not just being quiet as a person, but a quiet spirit is very different from a quiet person. A quiet spirit says that inside you're not raging, constantly running around trying to find the thing to satisfy you. You're settled inside. Are you more now than you were before? Can you blame it on your circumstances? Can you blame it on something that's happened? Some person, some event, some wrong thing? Do you really think that an event can interfere without your choice in making you more like him? Is that what we think? Do we really think that events are out of God's control and they've snuck into this situation and thrown the fly in the ointment? Or is it really our choice? Are we more miserable, less like him, more discontent, more broken, more whatever? I mean, broken in the, in the negative way, because we've chosen to be? Because, you know, even the worst of circumstances could make us more like him. Sometimes that's what he needs to do to shout or move us by something other than a feather. Are we still holding on to those things and somehow we're allowing that situation to make us less like him? Well, let me ask you, what way do you want to grow? Is it God's fault? Do you really think God's on, on holiday now? Or do you think he's wanting to use these things to make you more like him? You're like, but I'm less content. Are you seeking him for it? I'm less stable. Are you seeking him for it? Or are you letting your appetites take you over? So this is how the chapter ends. Now, a man of God came to Eli, verse 27. Now, we don't even read his name. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what tribe. We don't even know if he's Jewish. Who is this guy? God's like, he's a, he's a man for me. That's all you need to know. Is he tall? Is he short? Is he fat? Does he eat bugs? Is he hairy? We don't know. He's just a guy with a message. And he came to the priest, Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, Pharaoh's house? We'll see that all the way back in Exodus 4. Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer up upon my altar, my altar, by the way, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Didn't I give all of that to you? Look at all the stuff I gave you. Look at all the promises I laid. And then he says in verse 20, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering 
which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourself fat with the best of my offerings of my people, of Israel, my people. Now this verse, I'm going to tell you, this punches me in the teeth when I realize what he's saying. First of all, kicking, I get the idea, is when a fat animal, normally a cow, is really tired of you feeding it. You've been so kind to it, and it turns around and responds back to your kindness by seeking to kick you in the face. But what it was kicking at was the problem here. Because what he says is, and you're kicking at my sacrifice. You're kicking at my offering. What is that for me today? That's Jesus on the cross. To honor anyone else. And that includes me, by the way. To honor me over him. It's like God saying, I've given you everything. And you look at the cross and you kick at it. Get that out of my face. That's not good enough. How can I do that? Can I honor my kids more than that? Can I honor my wife more than that? Can I honor you more than that? I could, but I realize what it is here. I say, God, I would follow you but this person. God, I know this is what your word says, but you don't understand I'm in love. God, I know this is what you say, but you don't know my friends. You don't know my circumstances. God's like, yes, I do. You don't know what you're doing. You're telling me that my way isn't good enough. You're kicking at my son to do that. You're kicking at my lordship and saying, hey, I don't need that. Just get me out of hell, okay? I'll, take, I'll, t- I'll do the rest myself. It's like, you can't do anything yourself but hurt yourself. It's not really what you want. And this man shows up to Ellie, and I remind you, he's got two kids, and he's like, kids, why are you doing this? This isn't good. But there's no response other than that. His dad has not taken any way to punish these kids to seek to correct the behavior. He just told him, this is bad. That is really bad. You guys shouldn't do that. But unfortunately, dad is also reaped in his negligence to step into the point now where these guys are like, dad, I don't care what you have to say. To say something is bad to somebody that you've clearly not shown what bad means doesn't mean anything to him. Therefore, God says, the God, the Lord God of Israel, verse 30, he says, I would indeed... I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever, and, and they will in one way or another, but not this way. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I'll honor. And the word honor means to hold me valuable, to make me important, to put me first. I think if you do that, I'll do it to you too. Put me first. Make me important in your life. Please. You know what it tells us? In Luke 16:15, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Man, what man lifts up here on earth and makes important, it's nauseating from the sight of heaven. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your arm. And he's using this as a metaphor. God talks about the arm of the Lord being exposed in Isaiah 53 when he talks about his son. This is the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all of the good that God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. We'll only see this in two chapters, by the way. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all your descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Which is interesting because he says, man, what you're going to see that doesn't die young, is going to, what you see is going to grieve you. And then what we're going to find is Ellie then becomes blind. Is that merciful maybe so he doesn't have to see any of this? Now this will be a sign to you. You want to see this to be proven? And a sign, I remind you, confirms a message. It's a supernatural, extraordinary event that confirms a message. Not a person, not a prophet, but a, but a message. The message is, you've bailed on me and you've chosen otherwise. You've chosen poorly. So I'm choosing as well. This will be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, Puncher and Serpent Mouth, Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they will die, both of them. We'll see that again in just two chapters. Spoiler alert. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all that is in my heart and my mind. 
I will build him a sure house. He will walk before my anointed forever. And it will come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of those priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Interesting. The faithful priest will not be a Levite. That's what God just said. He'll have to come from somewhere else. Well, I get that because the first high priest was not Aaron. First high priest got went all the way back to the book of Genesis, by the way. And in the book of Genesis, there was the first high priest, by the way, interestingly enough, was also called a king because his name was Melchizedek. And Melech means king. Zedek means righteousness. And the king of righteousness was the first high priest. And by the time we get just within a hundred years of this situation in 1 Samuel, we'll read this in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and he will not relent. You are a high priest or a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Somebody before there was a Levite. Hebrews will build on this. And nearly a third of the book of Hebrews, in one way or another, refers to this. Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 15, just nail it down. Jesus is that, because this Melchizedek shows up on the scene and leaves. We don't have any beginning. We don't have any end to this guy. People say, was that Jesus? I'm like, I don't know. I'll ask him when I see him. I do know this. Just like that guy, Jesus had no beginning or end. Now, in our case, with Melchizedek, we could say that in regards to the story, but with Jesus, that's just eternity. He had no beginning, he had no end, because he wasn't created. We all had a beginning. We don't have an end. I can't wrap my head around that. I don't know how I could. Nothing on earth has no end except us. And God says, listen, what are you going to favor? What's going to be really important to you? I mean, you say it's me, but is it really me? If it really is me, when I give you what you're asking, will you bail on me at this point? And what are you sowing? Well, what do you expect to reap? I mean, if I'm not going to live a life of obedience, do I really expect God to look at me when I come and stand before him and go, well done, good and faithful servant? You did nothing so well. I'm not here to lay a heavy trip on you. I'm here to be honest. I want to put him first. Because he put me first. He put his son on a cross. And that was his offering. That was his sacrifice on my behalf. He's like, what more do I have to give you? If I would, and that's what it says. He who would not spare his son, will he not freely give you all things? Now, not all things like things that take you away from him, but the things you need, not the things that you want. He's not Santa. Because if he gave us everything we wanted, we would leave the thing we needed. And that's him. And with all this said, I want to go to prayer now. But I don't want to just jump into some words. I want to give a moment and let us be quiet before God and say, God, is there anything I'm honoring more than you? Is there anything I'm holding on to? And it gets worse daily because what I'm seeing is that I'm really cultivating a really terrible investment. Something in my heart that I'm nurturing and I'm watering and I'm tending to, that's bearing forth terrible fruit. And every day it seems to be getting worse. When truth be told, I don't just need a trim on this thing. I need this thing yanked up from the roots and I need it gone. Because what I really want is to be the Samuel in the story, not one of these other punk kids. And I don't have to be great, brilliant, talented, It's just that I have to be yours. It's not about who I am. It's about whose I am. There's the point. And as Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of our sins and rose again, he's more than Savior, beloved. He has to be Lord. Is he Lord in our lives? Or just conveniently when we tell him to be? Because tonight, let's make it right. We're going to get quiet before the Lord and then we'll pray. Would you do that with me, please?
Lord God, tonight here in this room, we do openly confess Jesus as our sacrifice, our offering for our sin. That's how we can be made right with you, is by him paying for our guilt. But we recognize Jesus' death is half the story. His resurrection makes him so much more. In our lives, he demands to be Lord of the new life he gives us. We recognize that. And tonight we confess Jesus not just as our Savior, as our ransom, as our payment, but as our Lord. Let it never be said of us that there's no king in my heart, and therefore I just do whatever I decide is right. But that I submit to you tonight, at whatever expense, my appetites. And I, I ask God that you commandeer them, and you submit them to your menus and let me sit there rest in you and finally be satisfied God for those things that have been invested in that have catered to my discontent catered to my weaknesses catered to my confusion catered to my bitterness catered to my Whatever, in some way that I'm so focused on myself and my pain that I am on you, change that tonight. Transform me right now. I surrender myself to you with my hands up. I surrender myself and I say, please tonight. Please tonight. Change all of that. That you would be the one thing most honored. And in being the one thing most honored, I hand myself to you, make beautiful things, make masterpieces with my life, build your kingdom, I'm your tool, in your hands. And here we are. And by saying amen, I recognize, I agree with this, this is my prayer now too, and I just say, Lord, now Father in heaven, receive this prayer and this offering. In Jesus' name.